I think money is awesome. It's spiritual. The more money you have, the better person you are. Like it means you've added more value to the world. Profit is a lagging indicator of value creation. Like Bill Gates added more value to the world because he made a bunch of money with Microsoft and invented the modern personal computer and Windows and all the software. He's added more value to the world doing that than he has been giving away money. Because anyone can give away money, but it, you know that's a zero-sum game, giving away money. Creating value, making profit, makes the world a better place, right? So I think Rockefeller made the world a better place by refining like the kerosene and light systems and his oil pipeline because he lowered the price of fuel and light for the average American by 80% in his lifetime. Henry Ford did the same thing for automobiles. He brought down the price of automobiles so much. Did he make a ton of money? Yeah. Did he give away? Does he have trust and foundations? Yeah. But making the money added more value to the world. This is the Better Wealth Podcast with Caleb Williams. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Better Wealth Podcast. In today's episode, we have a treat for you. Uh, I got to sit down with a good friend of mine, Tim Chermax, a couple months ago when I actually spoke at his event in San Antonio. And Tim is the CEO and founder of a company called Platform Marketing. And they work with real estate professionals, agents, brokers, and help them. They have a super unique business model, but they help them get leads and are their marketing agency. But they only work with one person per region. And so it's created this demand all across the country, um, which has been really cool. Because when I went to their event, I got to meet top real estate professionals in each region, which was just a true honor. And Tim, Tim and I met through a mutual friend about a year ago. Uh, Jason Rink, actually, who I'll definitely have on the show. Jason's done uh, the Nelson Nash documentary, has done a couple other really great documentaries and videos. And he connected us. After talking to Tim for like five minutes, I knew that this guy was a total winner. An amazing entrepreneur. You'll hear in his story, like dropping out of college and convincing his siblings to drop out of college to start a business. They've had ups and downs. And to to see their community is really special like i i get i get pumped and as you guys know that it's it's our goal and we're hoping to have our first annual event this year and tim is one of the reasons why we're doing that is i just saw how powerful getting people in a room is and i was it was a true honor to speak at his event Um, but one of the things in talking you know tim and i see very eye to eye on a lot of things uh, and and one of our you know things is, you know, you are your greatest asset. And as a marketing guy, he's like, man, if people understood that, if they understood how marketing works and they understand investing, like investing could be investing in marketing. Like if you're an entrepreneur listening to this and you can increase your revenue by more people hearing about you, like that's just an interesting perspective. Like why would you invest in other people's investments? You could invest in marketing, which is not only helping people know that you exist, but could bring in more revenue, which i.e. could be a way greater rate of return than another investment. So he has that kind of mindset and I got to share the and asset and, and the, you know, the book with him. And, and so we grew our, our, our friendship. And then uh, I got a package in the mail after our, our first or second conversation. And it's this massive book called Atlas Shrugged. And uh, pretty much in a very frank way, you'll, you'll know what I mean when you hear this episode interview. Tim's like, Caleb, I really like you. I want to work with you. I even want you to speak at our annual event. Uh, but none of that's happening until you read this book. And 
trust me, I know the premise of, of the book and I'm a fan of the principles, um, but I'm like, oh my goodness, if, if for those of you that know, reading is not my strongest suit. And uh, so Tim, uh, if you're listening to this, my man, you're one of the few people that have uh, could, could have encouraged me to actually sit down and read that book. And uh, I'm really glad that you you had me do that. And it's one of those books that um, is definitely up there for me as it relates to to the philosophy and how business works. And, and for those of you that like to read or, um, or, or want a challenge, I would encourage you to read Atlas Shrugged. W- without further ado, I want to introduce to you Tim Chermack, great friend of mine, an amazing business story, got some really strong viewpoints, as you'll see. And uh, I know you're going to gain a lot from this this interview. Hey, Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're in San Antonio. You at- actually asked me to come speak at your mastermind, which was a blast, by the way. And I've been really waiting a couple months to have you on my show because I am so excited about what we're going to uncover, just hearing your journey of starting platform, your personal beliefs. We were just even talking about before the show about the community that you have of realtors and mortgage lenders and is amazing. And you're super clear on what you want out of life and what you want out of this whole wealth and what wealth looks like to you. And it's just really special. And so I, it was funny, we were talking at dinner yesterday about um, just getting being around people that stimulate, you know, great conversations. And you're one of those people in my life that I just love talking to and I could talk for hours. We're not going to do that on the show, but um, I, man, I just want to capture your story and just um, get some, get some nuggets of just what, what, what should we call them? Tim, Timisms. Uh, so why don't you unpack uh, for my listeners who you are and then how you started on this entrepreneur journey. Yeah, I think I I was I was one of those kids that always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I mean, when you're five years old, you don't know what that word means. But in in hindsight, looking back, I I had the lemonade stand when our family would have garage sales. I would ask my grandma to bake a sheet of cookies so that I could sell them and make money at the garage sale. And I still remember making like ten dollars one time by selling cookies that I didn't make at the garage sale. I had no concept of like cost of goods or profit margin or anything like that. I was like, grandma, can you make me cookies so I can sell? And she's like, oh yeah, sure. And you know, I was whatever, five years old and it's just a small fortune having $10. Like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this absurd amount of money? Right. Um, it's like hedge fund type money when you're in preschool. And, uh, you know, looking back, I would, I would get baseball cards with my allowance money and then I would repackage the baseball cards using like paper from the a printer tray and I would sell them to neighborhood kids because I had, would make my own packs of cards and I would, you know, I don't know, sell them for 10 cents or whatever, but I'd, I'd have a logo on it. And I understood like the concept of lifetime value to keep customers coming back. Like every pack of cards, there had to be at least one actual good card in there so that no one would ever feel like they're getting ripped off. So they would keep buying my, you know, my cards. And I probably enjoyed that almost more than even, trading cards and collecting cards. I liked selling them and the idea that people would pay me money for something, you know, and I had a lawn mowing business when I was a kid. Um, my dad bought me when I was, I don't know, middle school, maybe like a golf ball retrieval, um, arm, like a telescoping arm thing. Cause we had a golf course in our backyard and there was like a Creek down there that, you know, golfers would hit balls in and I'd go find them and polish them up and resell them. And I'd set up a little folding table, you know, and sell all these golf balls to golfers coming by and 
most of them are like 50 cents a ball, a dollar a ball type thing. And um, if I'd get a really nice one, like a Titleist ball, like a Pro V1, it's like that ball might sell for $3 or $4 or $5. And if, if it was really nice. And so I learned pricing strategies and also like how to command a premium price. And most of them were probably buying because they felt bad for me or it's cute that a little kid is doing this. But I still remember there was one guy who came by and my dad is like, this is a pro V1. This is a really nice ball. It's in good shape. You should sell this for $5. And, you know, as a kid, I'm like, dad, that's like a, you know, that's an annual income right there. $5. That's expensive for a golf ball. He's like, no, this one's $5. And I still remember um, this one guy came up and just like, was like, that is so expensive. That is insane. $5. I thought it would be, you know, 50 cents. And he like, was like tearing into me and I'm, I don't know how old I am, 10 years old, I guess. I don't know, but I still remember it. And I like stuck to my guns and I was like, no, it's $5. And I just kind of learned to almost take abuse from customers. <laughs> and I learned to have like thick skin. Right. And eventually someone bought it. And so all these lessons looking back, I, I was probably destined to be an entrepreneur, not in some fluffy motivational type of way, but it's like, oh, if I, if I look back, the signs were there that I probably was going to be a business owner. And did were your parents pouring into you or what spurred the entrepreneurial drive? For me, it's just, I think, my personality type. I mean, I even made comic books as a kid where I, I wrote like a superhero series about myself, uh, Top Secret Timmy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were, I don't know, five pages long a piece. And this was before I was like literate. So I knew how to draw like stick figures and then I would ask my mom to draw the captions. I was like, here's what I want this page to say, because I didn't know how to write yet or read. And then my mom would write the captions out and I would draw the pictures, which, you know, not factoring in the cost of free labor into my calculations. But I would sell them to like my cousins and aunts and uncles at Thanksgiving and Christmas for 25 cents a piece, you know, and just the thrill of like someone handing me a quarter and I'd hand them a comic book and like knowing that I made something that someone else was willing to pay for felt felt really cool so went to college uh was majoring uh in economics and finance because i literally in like my freshman year went on google and just like typed in highest paying job out of college (laughs) you know i did that too i mean i like i'm not saying that i literally remember going on google and typing in what is the highest paying job out of college and it was like investment banker and i was like settled I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. Done. You know, I actually did that and, and I saw a doctor. And so then I, I was like, all right, I'm going to be a doctor. And then I took biology and I'm like, sorry, dad, if you're listening to this. And I'm like, uh, not going to do, a, not going to go down the medical. No, route. I mean, again, in hindsight, it is so clear that I just should have been an entrepreneur because in college, even the classes I didn't like and I didn't care about, I would pay other people to do them. So it's like, you know, the uh, online coursework and quizzes, I was like, oh, I'll find someone who's good in biology and pay them to do my homework and take these quizzes for me because I have no interest in learning college-level biology or even stats, which in hindsight, I probably should have paid more attention stats class because that has some relevant applications to business. But I was still like, this is boring. I'll pay my buddy who's a math major to do this for me. And so even like early on, like learning the idea that just at a high, a high level that I can pay people to do stuff that I'm not good at. And if you define it that way, it's like, that's entrepreneurship. And again, I, don't, I didn't see it, but in hindsight, all the signs were there. So uh, I eventually discovered I hate finance. Um, I'm interested in economics at maybe a intellectual level. So I love discuss, you know, discussing Mises or Hayek or Friedman or monetary theory or what causes economic growth in the third world and development economics and 
um, what tax rates should be, and blah, 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 blah. I was interested at an intellectual level, but I'm not going to be an economist. You know, I was outsourcing my math in freshman year. I'm not going to be an economist. Are you kidding me? I'd be the worst economist ever. I eventually learned enough about myself, you know, just through reading books and becoming older, that what I really like is growing things. I like taking something and growing it, sales and marketing. And so I just decided I'm going to start my own business. Like I, I enjoy this. And I went door to door to small businesses in my hometown, um, dropped out of college, like my senior year when my parents were devastated because, uh, my, my dad was actually a high school dropout. And so he, he had worked hard his whole life, worked his way up and, uh, started a couple small businesses from scratch. Like I said, he's a high school dropout. So it's not like he had tons of money. He just worked his way up with the 80 hour weeks. And um, he eventually became a self-made millionaire through just a variety of completely random, unrelated small businesses. He was just that classic American, like small town entrepreneur who would try anything if he thought that it could be a profitable business. I mean, he owned like a staffing service, a mailing company where he was like a, third-party retail office where you could ship FedEx or UPS or normal mail, or they'd package stuff for you. I don't, I, still to this day, I don't know how he got into that business. He opened a restaurant once. He had a Polaris dealership that sold like ATVs and personal watercraft and snowmobiles. He um, had a RV dealership, um, ran, random stuff, right? And Seeing all that, I guess that probably shaped my views that it was normal to go into business for yourself because I saw my dad do it. So it, and it was never a weird career option to me. But he was devastated when I dropped out of college because I think he always defined his whole life as like, my life is a success. If my kids can afford to go to college and get the social approval that comes with a college degree that I never had. So he's always uh, had and has an inferiority complex that he doesn't have a college degree and he isn't, you know, part of that socioeconomic uh, caste system, I guess we have in the U S of people who have college degrees and people, people who don't, it doesn't matter that he has millions in the bank and he's more financially secure than 99% of Americans. He has this inferiority complex that he was always, uh, you know, looked, looked down on by his peers that he wasn't formally educated or anything. So, I mean, as a, as a kid, he grew up super poor and that stays with you, right? It's funny because we're in a bubble where we're almost embarrassed. I'm, I'm sometimes embarrassed that I tell people that I have a college degree. Yeah, that is embarrassing, man. <laughs> so, but, but the point is like, th- it, times have changed. And I guess if I put myself back in your dad's shoes, that was a, I mean, he had to work through a yeah, lot. If you were growing up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 1980s, like, you have to realize, I think having a college degree is more of a social signaling mechanism than it is an actual education. I mean, there's tons of studies that prove now that most kids don't learn anything in college. They graduate not having any additional retained knowledge than when they went in. It's more of a signaling mechanism to employers that this person has a minimum level of intelligence they were able to show up on time, type the papers. So I'm not saying it's not valuable in terms of being a signal to employers, but it's not like every person who necessarily goes to college is an intellectual who is extremely intelligent or smart, right? I don't think college degrees are this end-all, be-all of that defines your success in life. But for my dad, it's a cultural thing that he viewed it as like a socioeconomic proof proof of success. So he always thought, my kids, you know, I'm going to make enough money by just 
scratching my way through life and hustling and working hard that my kids are going to have the life that I didn't have as defined by being able to go to college. He always wanted me to be a lawyer. He's like, Tim, you're smart. You're persuasive. You're going to be the lawyer in the family that... You love to argue. (laughs) Yeah, you love to argue. Exactly. And so being a lawyer is a prestigious profession and it made him... It made him happy knowing that I'm going to work hard so that my kid is like respected, essentially, which is, I think, completely different than having money because he had money, but he never felt respected because he didn't have he didn't have the degree. And so that's why he was just devastated when I dropped out of school, because to him, I was making the mistake that would like keep me in his. Yeah, it almost continued. the. Yeah, I I hear you. Cast even. Right. Um, and so he was so mad, but I was going door to door into local businesses and just saying, Hey, hire me. Here's some marketing ideas. And I would type up a marketing plan of what I would do if I were you to grow your business. And this is before Facebook ads. This is just me coming up with ideas. And did you read marketing books? I know you mentioned Dan Kennedy. Read tons of marketing books. And so I was basically educated on marketing in the sense that I had read more books than the business owner had. Didn't have a degree in marketing. Took maybe one class in marketing. But why marketing? You could do anything you wanted. Why did you choose marketing for businesses? I just enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed the idea of writing out a business plan and thinking, what would I do if I had to grow this business? Because when I didn't have a list of happy clients and case studies and everything, when I was just getting started, uh, really all you have to rely on in the presentation is the strength of your ideas. The ideas have to be intuitively powerful enough that even if you don't have results, that the business owner you're talking to can look at your plan. And in like 30 seconds, they can be like, you know what? This, I could see this working. This is a really good idea. I've never thought of this before. Like, let's do this. Because why the hell else would they trust a 21-year-old coming in with no experience you know i i would i i went to office max and i bought a leather briefcase that i would carry into meetings that was completely empty not not making this up just to make me look more professional like it was empty there was nothing in it i didn't have a laptop in there there wasn't like legal pads or important papers i i would just carry it in just to make it look like i was a businessman i guess it was like businessmen at briefcases right and so I was just trying to get that first client. And I went to... Did you have any money at 21? No, absolutely not. I mean, I didn't have a full-time job. I didn't... I don't know. My net worth was $100, you know? Like, I was living at home, so my expenses were still low, but had no money. Went to probably a dozen businesses. So I went to, you know, uh, health businesses, salon spas, um, car dealerships, real estate agents... Uh, financial advisors and many of them gave me like two meetings, three meetings where they invited me back to keep sharing. And I think it was a mixture looking back of feeling bad that this 21 year old is obviously so ambitious and type A that you want to help out a kid like that. Like, you know what that's like being young and people are giving you meetings because they kind of just feel good helping you out. They don't have any intention of hiring you necessarily, but they're like, yeah, this kid is so ambitious. I'll give him a second meeting. And that got my hopes up like, oh my God, they might hire me. And then we get to the third meeting and then I would, you know, give them more of the specifics of the marketing plan. And they're like, you know what, we've decided that we can't afford this right now or that it's not the right time and all this, you know, host of excuses. Um, I don't think any of them ever planned on actually hiring me. They were just stringing me along because they thought it made me feel good somehow. Eventually I got a client and it was a real estate agent and the real estate agent didn't have any money to pay me, but she was desperate and needed something to work because her business had 
collapsed after the the recession in, in uh, 2008. And she said, I have no money, but I want to do this because I see how your ideas could work. They're outside the box. They're contrarian. It's not what the other real estate agents are doing. And I need to do something to stand out. And what we worked out is uh, I would take 25% of her income. So essentially, she gave me 25% ownership in her business, which was worth nothing because she wasn't doing any business. And so we both agreed essentially that, well, being my business is practically non-existent. I have no leads in the pipeline. I'm not making any money. If there's any growth whatsoever, you deserve at least a quarter of it because I'm giving you 25% of zero. You know? And I was like, cool. So with what little money she had, I mean, we're talking about a couple hundred dollars, not a couple thousand dollars. We set up some ads, did some marketing, filmed some videos. The one thing I did have is I had saved up to buy a pretty nice camera at the time, like a video camera. And so we filmed listings of her videos and we filmed like market update videos where we'd go and just talk about what's going on in the local market. We'd interview local restaurant owners just to position her as kind of being an expert in the community and an advocate of the community. And within a year, her business was booming within two years. I mean, she went from poverty, like she was selling clothes and jewelry. So I mean, poverty, uh, her house was in foreclosure, had lost her car. So when I say poverty, she wasn't making money. I'm not just saying her business had slowed down. I mean, she was on the verge of like losing her house to the bank as a realtor, which is obviously humiliating to, for an, a real estate agent to go into foreclosure. Um, and she made like 200 grand in her business within, you know, a couple of years and in a small town too. So that's a shit ton of money in a small town where houses you can buy for like a hundred thousand dollars. Right. And so I owned a quarter of her business and I was like, you know, this is the cat's pajamas. This is pretty sweet. <laughs> You're rolling in the dump. I'm like 22 years old and I'm making more money than people that are twice as old as me. Right. This is pretty cool. And, uh, got a call from like the, the president of the Minnesota board of realtors who saw that this agent I was working with her, you know, her production had soared and he's like, what you're doing is illegal. And I was like, come again. He's like, you can't take a percentage of her income if you're not licensed as an agent. Uh, so I was like, well, I don't want to get licensed as an agent. That sounds like a lot of work. And so what I would eventually do is I would send her like monthly marketing consulting invoices every month and the number of hours I worked every month always coincided with 25% of her income. So that's just kind of what we did. And eventually that led me anyways to, to start the business platform because she referred me to agents across the country. They would refer me and at some point in there. It all happened accidentally, organically, wasn't part of any master plan. It wasn't like I sat down and was like, oh, I'm going to launch a nationwide real estate marketing agency. It just kind of, I, I realized at some point in there, like, hey, the marketing plan that I designed for her, being that real estate agents only typically work in one city, they want to be an expert in that community. If I'm doing this for agents in other states and other towns, like, it's not a conflict of interest. I could do this for hundreds of agents across the country at the same time with one marketing plan that I could essentially copy and paste across the country. And I just realized that as I started picking up clients. So again, it wasn't part of some master five-year plan, it just all kind of happened. I mean, I was 21, 22 at the time. And again, like it just got to the point where, oh, I have too much work. You know, we have 10 clients now. It's more than I can handle and myself. And how do you get the first 10 clients? Just all referrals. I don't think we even ran paid ads like Facebook ads to, you know, to get clients until we probably had 15, 20 clients. And then, then we realized like there's actually some money coming in. Maybe we should start running ads to get more clients. And but at that point, again, there's no master plan. 
I didn't have a business degree, didn't have an MBA, you know, so I was just kind of like, oh, I guess we should hire an employee because I can't do it all anymore. So we hired an employee. And then when that employee's plate got full, it's like, I guess we need to hire another employee because we need to keep growing and there's demand for it. I think when people look at small business owners or business growth in general, entrepreneurship, they think that entrepreneurs are like this elite intellectual class that just knows how to scale a business. Like, no, none of us know what we're doing. We're totally winging it every day. I have imposter syndrome 99% of the time and the other 1% of the time I'm being delusional about my abilities. 100%. You know, you just wing it the entire time. Anyways, Caleb, now we have, uh, I think we have 19 employees right now. We've started a couple side businesses uh, like software SaaS companies based on the marketing um, systems we built growing this. And it all just kind of has happened. Like I said, said it 10 times, I'll probably say it another 10 times, not part of any master plan. But as we see opportunities and demand for what we're doing, we just kind of pursue it because I think growing a business is fun. I like inherently enjoy it. Yeah. Now, a couple of, a couple of things I want to follow up with. You convinced your younger brother to drop out of school. Oh yeah, that really pissed off my dad. Cuz I like, can't even imagine. Like he he dropped out of school to work for you and you're like to make $500 a month cuz that's what we could afford to pay him at the time. What what did your what was that conversation like with your dad? Were you still living at home at the time? It was the last like 6 months, the last year I was at home. Yeah. There wasn't really a conversation cuz he lied about it for a couple months. My parents still thought he was taking you know taking the classes and everything and eventually they're like oh no i'm working with working with tim and we only had money to pay him 500 dollars a month and so it wasn't like he dropped out to take this lucrative eighty thousand dollar a year job as my coo or something it was like no we pay him 500 dollars a month because that's what we could afford and and so that 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 devastated my dad because now his oldest son which is you know me like the firstborn or whatever has dropped out of school it was always his dream that i would be a lawyer and i would bring honor to the family or you know whatever the hell that means by having this degree and being a respected member of the community and you know um, this like old school conception of being a lawyer and being a pillar of the community blah 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 like the shermack name having this respect and i'm a now a dropout entrepreneur and that's cool if you're mark zuckerberg or bill gates or something but it's not cool when you're starting a local marketing agency with realtors it loses the prestige when you're not a billionaire dropout right so he was mad enough about that but he's like whatever tim will do his own thing he's hard to reason with you know um but andrew my brother it's like you know he's not as necessarily entrepreneurial as me and so my dad was like what in the hell are you doing like he's the type of person who needs a degree. He's not going to go launch his own business. Why are you ruining his life essentially by convincing him to drop out? And I was like, cause he's smart and I need an employee that I trust. And so I, I didn't really have a good argument for him, but Andrew wanted to, and Andrew was bored with his, uh, you know, college business classes. And he was telling me, I'm not learning anything. This is stupid. Andrew made the decision. I think that I'm going to learn more about the business world by dropping out and working with you on this business, even if it doesn't work, then I will in these like theoretical classes I'm taking in school and I can always go back to school. So I'm going to drop out and do this. So I think that was the calculus that he used. Like, all right, I'll do this. Um, eventually I also convinced my younger sister to drop out and work for us. But at that point, the business was growing enough that my parents were like, okay, well you've now taken all three of the kids into your business out of higher education. But with with her, the business was growing enough that we were stable and profitable and it wasn't as big of a deal. They were probably still mad, but um, that now none of their kids have college degrees or, you know, uh, we're not formally educated, but the business was profitable. And You post a lot of interesting things on Facebook. You said the other day that uh, even a $5,000 
coaching scam program is usually a better value than going to college. Yeah, so I could rant on this for like hours. I want to hear your will, thoughts on college. You know, there's so many uh, make money online gurus and masterminds and coaching programs and training seminars and whatever that sell for $1,000 or $5,000 or $20,000. And there's, you know, uh, these, like I said, gurus who host masterminds that'll teach you how to become a millionaire. And it's all just new variations of the get rich quick seminars that popped up in the 1970s and eighties. And rightfully that whole world of internet marketing and make money online has a mutation because they take a lot of people's money and then those people don't get results. So think of that in your head as like just the definition of a slimy, bad ROI. And then look at, we tell 18-year-old kids in high school who have maybe worked a job at Culver's, like making cheese curds and custard milkshakes. That's the extent of their life experience. And we're like, hey, sign on the dotted line here for a $100,000 uncollateralized loan for you to major in sociology. It's like, well, the sociology factory is currently not hiring, so I don't know what you're going to do with that degree when you get out of school. But let's let's look at a business degree, right? Because some people might be like, yeah, that's a straw man argument, Tim. Because what about business degrees? And it's like, also, it bothers me that most kids who have college degrees don't even know what a straw man argument is. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, a business degree, something supposedly as practical and useful and valuable in the market as a business admin degree. It's like, hey, what the hell does business <laughs> admin mean? My company's not currently hiring any business administrators. I don't even know what that means. It's all general, all theory. You could learn all that from reading books. So it almost makes me question your business sense, ironically, if you think going $100,000 to debt for a general business degree is a wise deployment of capital. It's uncollateralized debt. You know, uh, and, and, and the opportunity cost of four or four or five years. <laughs> yeah. So the average person takes five years to graduate if they graduate. So the whole four years thing is actually totally wrong. It's five years of your life if you graduate. The reason I know a college degree isn't worth it for the vast majority of people who aren't majoring in like law or medicine or engineering or something that legally requires a college degree, right? Yeah. If you want to go into those fields, absolutely get a college degree because you actually can't do the job legally without the degree. But for everything else, I think 90% of people right now who are going to college don't need to go to college and they don't need the debt uh, because it takes five years. And so that's the other argument is even if college were free and let's say Bernie Sanders gets his way and college is literally free, right? Like no one has to pay because uncle Sam is taking care of it. Five years of your life early on in your career is way more expensive than most people realize in terms of career capital. Because you need to think of your career the same way that you would think of an investment fund, like your retirement nest egg, there's compound interest. And the earlier that you're talking about, the more the compound interest makes a big difference over time. Five years of your career, let's say from age 18 to 23, is more important to the connections you'll make, the skills you'll acquire, the, you know, the money and the network you build, those first five years are way more important than the five-year period of age 30 to 35 or age 42 to 47 or age 58 to 63. Because that's later on when you know, you've already established everything. But early on, the, the growth over time becomes exponential because it's the connections you make in those first five years and the skills you build and the promotions you get, the network you build that shapes the rest of the five years. So you talk about, you know, if you lose a dollar in your personal finance, you didn't just lose that dollar. You lost 
all the earnings and the growth of that dollar would have created you for the rest of your life. It's the same thing with the years of your career. Career capital compounds just like money does. And so removing yourself from the business world for five years to sit in cinder blocks classrooms with uh, fluorescent lights, listening to college professors who may or may not have ever worked in the business world, reading to you from textbooks, doing that for five years is killing the early, the early advantage you might have by just getting into the business world. Like if you take any average kid and they just start apprenticing somewhere, Caleb, for free, go to a business and work for free. Be like, Hey, I will work for you for free for a year. And I, as a business owner, I'd be like, why? And if they just told me, I just want to learn, like my payment will be what I would learn. Cause either I'm going to pay $20,000 to some dumbass like local community college or state school to learn business. I'll pay to sit in a classroom and learn theory, or I can work here and provide value to you for free and not have to pay anything. And I'll get way more experience. If you just did that for a year and if you're any good, you'll get hired the second year. And now years two, three, four, and five, you're making money and you're probably working your way up, learning new skills. You will be so much further along after those five years than someone who removed themselves from the business world for five years, got a degree, and now at age 23 is going out to get an entry-level job with their fancy degree, which is hard to get. Yeah, because they want experience. It's like, well, how do I get experience? If I, it's like, work for free. That's what I say. We should go back to an apprenticeship model like they had in the 1400s and 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, where you apprentice somewhere for a year or two, learn the trade, work your way up. Like if you are any good and you trust yourself in business, don't go to college, work for free apprentice. And I guarantee you, you will be further along in your career after five years than someone who has a business admin degree, even if it's from a private school. So I kind of like, uh, was insulting JUCOs and state schools there, but like, even if it's a fancy private school, if you actually trust yourself to be effective in the business world and make connections and provide enough value to the company you're at that you earn promotions and you earn pay raises, you're better off without, without the degree. Because I'd rather have five years of experience that compound than a piece of paper. What really pisses me off, the last thing I'll say, is like the people that are taking this advice that it damages the most are the poorer kids and like the, you know, the lower, poorer half of the middle class that don't necessarily know any better because their parents aren't always business owners. Their parents don't always have college degrees. Like the worst thing they can do if they're trying to escape being poor or move up into the middle class, the upper middle class, the worst thing you can do is take on a bunch of uncollateralized debt. You know, if a business owner is starting a new business and I was starting a marketing agency, it would almost be borderline evil to tell me, I think Tim, that you should just take a hundred thousand dollar business loan and figure it out. Like, no, don't take on debt if you don't even know what you're going to do with it. So even for degrees like business admin, I think it's very obvious now that, yeah, you probably shouldn't go 100K in debt for a sociology degree or a psychology degree or, or, you know, like underwater basket weaving, you know, but even a business degree is not worth $100,000 or frankly, $50,000 and five years of your life. And and the time is is valuable as well, like the loss of time. That's what you're saying. It's interesting because when people come to me and they say like, Caleb, what would you do if you had to do it over again? I college degree because I did it in three years and sure. it just gave me which is incredibly rare by the way right incredibly rare to do it in three but years but it gave me and I worked the whole time through it but it gave me three years to figure it out like I didn't have pressure to be like oh I have to go get a job that pays me $40,000 a year like I was okay going to school figuring it out and that's the thing like you you know you get a degree you get a job let's say making 40000 which is typically what most grads make their first year something like that sometimes even less you can get those jobs without a college degree. 
like you 100% can get a $40,000 a year job without a college degree. If you just read some books on business and you apprentice at a company for six months or a year, I mean, we've hired a couple people a platform that that's how they got a job. They came to me and they're like, I don't necessarily have marketing skills. I want to learn. Can I work for you for free for X period of time? And if after that time I've proven that I add enough value, then you can talk about hiring me. I'm not even going to talk about what I want to get paid in the future because I'm, you know, I understand that I haven't even earned that right to waste your time on that discussion yet, but can I work for you for free and just learn the business? And if you want to hire me because I'm valuable, then we can talk about it then. Of course I said yes. How could I say no to that? And so those people at our company are working their way up, have no student loan debt, you know, and they're way better off than their peers that took on 50K of debt. And then they're still having that same conversation with an employer at age 23 of like begging for a job, even though they have a college degree, that same entry level job. Um, you know, just because you have a business administration degree, newsflash doesn't mean I'm going to hire you for a $90,000 a year management position. Like, Oh cool. You read some theory on management. Here's a mid-level management job approaching six figures. I don't even care if someone comes in with an MBA. It's like, cool. How are you? Like, all I care about is how are you going to add value to our clients and therefore our company if an MBA and what you learned in your MBA helps you do that, then awesome. But it's the value you're providing to the world, not the piece of paper that says you got an MBA that that matters, right? And it's it's always funny to me. Like I worked at uh, I worked at Disney when I was in uh, college. I did their like Disney college internship program, and you know, so working at uh, you know, for, I think Disney's a Fortune 50 company. You know, they're huge, and they have this program where they'll pay for someone to get their uh get their undergrad degree They're, like a lot of companies will pay to get an mba and then there's like pay raises assigned based on that or even in like public schools right if you get your graduate degree in education you automatically get a pay raise it's like why like congratulations you have a graduate degree in education how are the kids any better off like if you could somehow prove to me that the students are learning better and that you're a more effective teacher because you took on this debt and you went to school for you know years it's like and that's why they gave me a twenty thousand dollar pay raise realize that the reason you got the pay raise is the value you're adding to the school and to the kids not the fact that you have a degree like the real world isn't uh it's, it's not based on like achieving levels of passing tests and look i you know i passed give me a pay raise like that's not how it works that's how it works in school well, I want to unpack uh, capitalism a little bit later, but it's essentially money follows value. Funny thing happens when you create value in people's lives and money will follow that because it's just a, a median of, it's really just a scoreboard of the person that's providing value. You know, I, I sound radical or contrarian or even angry in how I'm describing this. The funny thing is, Caleb, I think this is how most people view the world. Like what I'm saying is intuitive to most people, but for whatever reason... We've all bought into these lies that everyone has to get a college degree. If you want to really succeed, you need a graduate degree. You need an MBA, you know, or even everyone should buy a house. There's all these just myths out there that society tells you that the American dream is home ownership. It's like, well, to some people, but to some people, renting might make a lot more financial sense, you know? So just learning how to be an, an independent thinker, I almost think ironically that gets squashed out of you the more school you have because you, you focus on memorizing things and studying for the test, you know, because uh, teachers teach to the test and life is not about learning for the test. You know, uh, life is about creating value for other people. Like if, if school was anything like real life, 
you'd be able to take group tests and you'd rely on the smart people like, hey, I'm in a, let's say a business calc class and I don't know anything about, you know, business math, you know, cause I'm a finance major, let's say, right. Or I mean, I'm a science major. I don't know anything about business calc. I'm going to partner with this guy who is a finance major and he can help me take the test and help learn this material and get a good grade. And then he'll help me on the science stuff. Cause I'm not really smart with that. Like that's how biotech companies work. Yeah. Like the science nerds do their thing. And they might hire the business guys to do the business development or the business development guy starts the company and hires the science nerds to manage the stuff that he or she has no idea how to do, right? And in school, that's called cheating. In the real world, that's called a partnership. And I'm not implying that everyone should cheat on tests or anything, but it's so interesting how divorced from reality the academic world is that, uh, you know, what almost exactly how we define success and being a team player and focusing on your strengths and everything that we learn in adult life is important to be a well-rounded individual and just a successful person is against the rules in school. So no wonder we have these college graduates, you know, getting cranked out by the tens of thousands every year that don't know how to think. Cause like they've been incentivized to literally do the exact opposite their entire life up to this point. They have to raise their hand to go to the bathroom, right? right? At age 22, 23, they have to beg the professor, hey, I couldn't make this class. Please give me grace on my midterm exam. Can I turn in my paper a day late type thing? In the real world, if you had something come up that you had to turn in a report a day late to your boss and you explained what happened and you did a great job on that report, no boss is going to care if it's 24 hours late as long as it's a good report. And so there's all these arbitrary rules in the world of school and following rules is not how you become successful in life. You need to look at what is the big picture? How am I creating value for other people? And all of a sudden when you realize that rules matter a lot less and you realize most of what we consider rules are like imaginary constructs that just kind of keep the peace of the social order. Yeah, you can be a day late on that report. You can be a week late on that report. But if it's really, really good, that's what they care about. Right. All right, let's move on to your concept of high-hanging fruit. W- when did you come out with that book? I uh, wrote, wrote, I, uh, wrote the book High-Hanging Fruit in 2016. And it was based on these ideas that I developed in doing all this, all this consulting with real estate agents and mortgage lenders over the years. I, I realized a lot of the leads that were coming in from the marketing campaigns that we were doing for them, they were people in the doing research phase. So they were a year out. They were six months out, nine months out. They weren't necessarily buyers or sellers that were ready to buy a house like this month. And so there's obviously the expression low hanging fruit, which means like the easiest, the easiest fruit to pick off the tree, like the low, the low branches. Yeah, the immediate, the people that want a immediate house gratification. Today. Yeah, those buyers or sellers that are ready to go now. Right. That sounds great. In- that sounds great in theory, but when you look at the real world, the low hanging fruit is actually the hardest way to grow your business because almost by definition, that's where the most competition is. If most agents want the low-hanging fruit, those are going to be the hardest leads to generate and the hardest leads to convert because that person's probably already talking to three, four, five other realtors. And so I developed this contrarian theory of high-hanging fruit where I said, what if we built and designed our marketing campaigns from the get-go to actually specifically appeal to people that are higher up in the sales cycle, that are maybe seven months away, like I said, 10 months away from actually being ready to buy or sell. And they're kind of in that casual, just doing research phase. Like if you reach out to them and you're like, hi, I'm a realtor. I saw that you requested my 
free report on whatever, you know, or I saw that you opted in to watch my video tour of such and such listing, or, you know, I saw that you requested information from my website. They're the type of person when you're eight months away, they're like, no, thanks. Just kind of looking. And that's what they say 95% of the time. It's like, cool. We just got them to admit that they're doing research. Right. And so that starts a casual conversation. So my whole theory with high hanging fruit has been the earlier in the sales cycle that you can generate the lead and just extremely casually start building a relationship with these people and adding value to them. So I'm not saying you try to hard sell them and use all these sales objection handling techniques to, to set a meeting and, you know, be pushy. It's like, no, cool. If they say they're just doing research, say, okay, no problem. How long have you lived in the area? You know, ask, yeah, just start super casual conversations and just stay top of mind with them. Um, don't even worry about setting an appointment to meet in person until later on once they're ready to go. And this has worked really, really well for our clients because it's the opposite of the way most realtors most, work. Most realtors are reactionary and have to answer their phone within a minute of being called by Zillow. Most realtors are trained that they're in a sales profession where sales skill and sales hustle is what builds your business. We teach realtors to focus more on marketing not sales. Because if you do the marketing right and you build a massive pipeline of people that are interested in doing research, the sales thing takes care of itself if you build a relationship. Like to the extent that you have to close leads and handle objections, right? you're not building relationships. And so if you open right, closing takes care of itself. And, and now you're taking the same concept and helping small businesses with a company called Main Street Marketing. Is that same concept? Is that the same concept? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we realized in growing platform, which is our business that works with mortgage lenders, realtors, that so many of them were like, this marketing has changed my life. I mean, Caleb, we have many, many realtors. So I'm not cherry picking a couple of examples. You were just at our mastermind. You, yeah. you know, it's that, always an unreal. Yeah, there's, uh, um, there's dozens of people in that room, not two or three or four, but dozens, if not 30, 40 people in there, we've doubled their business or we've tripled their business. So we're not talking about even 10% growth or 20 We've tripled their bit. Like they went from, they went from making a hundred thousand a year to 300,000 a year, right? We've radically changed their life and their family's life. And that's, that's really, really exciting to see. So they get excited about that. And they're like, Hey, I know these other small business owners in my community. Can you help them too? And so uh, this eventually happened so much that we decided just to start kind of a sister company Main Street Marketing that does marketing for local brick and mortar small business owners that aren't realtors. So basically the only rule for that company is this is this is marketing for you if you're not a realtor. If you're a you know mortgage lender or a realtor, go to platform because we have a very specific system built to help them maximize their success. But for anyone else, whether you're, you know, a CrossFit gym or a, a soup and sandwich shop, restaurant, dentist, insurance agent, car dealership, all the other you know, women's retail clothing boutique, like whatever type of small business you own, Main Street Marketing. So the website for that is long live small business if anyone's listening and you're interested. But the cool thing with Main Street Marketing is we only charge 200 bucks a month. So we priced it so that like my my vision as a um, kid of uh, parents who were small business owners, like seeing us struggle growing up, there were Christmases where like I found out this years later but my parents were like yeah that one christmas when you were in third grade remember when you didn't get any presents and i was like yeah because remember they told me hey tim can you talk to your brother and sister and just kind of let them know that there won't be presents this year we need you to be a leader and not get mad because if they see you getting mad they'll pout too and i was like okay you know not really knowing what's happening because i'm in third grade it's like it's because my parents businesses were failing and we were a million dollars in debt and the bank was calling the line of credit 
like a million dollars, not $50,000. It's like, we had no idea what to do. Right. So I totally empathize with small business owners that are hustling, putting it on the line, trying to make their small business work. And so we're excited about Main Street Marketing providing this marketing program where we basically become your CMO. We'll do all your marketing for you. We'll manage your Instagram ads, your Facebook ads. We'll design the retargeting content to get you more customers in your business, whatever it is. And for $200 a month, hopefully any small business owner in America can afford that. And if you literally can't afford $200 a month, not to be a dick, but I just question how serious you are about your business. You know, so we're excited about that, that we basically just launched that in the last 24 months. And it's starting to take off and take on a life of its own, getting referrals and people I mean, we've, we've had already tons of case studies of people. They, they sign up and in the first year they've grown their business by 20, 25% and they're spending less money on advertising than they were before they joined mainstream marketing. So I don't mean to launch into a huge sales pitch, but yeah, we're really excited about that. No, man. And that's, and that's what I lo- love about your model because even helping realtors, you have, you have realtors making hundreds of thousands of dollars and you guys have a flat fee. Like you are, and it's amazing and you're changing their business and you're all the value that you're creating. It's funny because uh, myself, Nick, another speaker at your, at your mastermind, we were like, dude, you got to charge more. And everyone in the room is like booing us and whatever. But like the reality is, is you got, it's a steal and, but you're creating massive value and, and it's just really, really cool, man. And and just the way that you think and the story that you have. It's, it's always something that's, that's kind of turned me off about, the marketing industry and the sales, like the online marketing and coaching consulting industries. There's all this advice out there about like charge the highest price as possible, charge a price premium, you know, because the, the higher prices that you charge, obviously the more money you can make profit margin, blah, 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 blah. And that's all right in theory. But the problem is most, most consultants or coaches or, you know, we're a, we're a marketing agency. So we manage our clients, digital ads. We even edit their videos, we built a full-blown marketing software that automates um, all the software side of it so our clients don't have to go out and sign up for Infusionsoft or, you know, lead pages or click funnels. Like, we've built our own internal marketing software that does all that for them. It's also a CRM. It can send direct mail out even. I mean, it's a full-blown marketing software stack. And yet we charge, like, half of what other companies charge because I feel like you shouldn't be trying to maximize your profit margin every month on every client what you should be maximizing is lifetime value. So it's not that I'm trying to make less money. I'm trying to make more money over the long term. Like we have clients, even though we have no contracts, Caleb, we're a marketing agency that doesn't have long-term contracts. You're not locked in for 12 months or 24 months or 18 months. There's no long-term contracts. And we have clients that have stuck with us for four years. Every month they could quit. Literally every month they could be like, I don't want to do this anymore. There's no contract they could quit. And they've been with us for four years and there's no one who's been with us for five years because our company just hasn't existed that long right that's <laughs> that doesn't happen and so when i say that you know you shouldn't always charge the highest price possible you should look at what's the best value for your client i'm not saying that in some like altruistic charity sense of oh, i just want to do good in the world it's like no i want to make metric shit tons of money right and i think the best way of doing that is providing so much value to clients that you make your money over the long term. And over the long term, you'll have a higher average lifetime value for a client than charging way higher prices and then having clients quit after two or three or four months because it's just not worth it to them. Right? I think a lot of service business owners especially should start thinking in those terms of how can I build a business that has higher lifetime value? Because you end up getting more referrals too 
and people are happier. We'll, we'll spend less money on marketing too because we're organically growing. We're getting those referrals. Like you're going to pay for it either way. You're either going to pay for it in higher cost per acquisition and a higher marketing budget because so many people are leaving that you have to be replacing them. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with employees. Do you want to like underpay your employees and then just pay for it a different way with the costs of employee turnover and churn and constantly hiring and training new people? Or do you want to pay your employees more and have less of that? You're going to pay for it either way. You'll probably be a lot happier <laughs> paying your employees better and not having that problem. So uh, anyways, that's that's worked really, really well for us. And our clients love it too. I mean, if you've met enough people just here at the Mastermind this weekend that they say good things about us behind closed doors, even when we're not asking in a good way. Yeah. Even when we're not asking them to. And so that's how I know that I think we've built something. So cool. you've read how many books? If you had to guess. Approaching 2000. I mean, I don't know. I read a lot. Out of the potential 2000 books that you've read, what is, what's, what's your favorite book? I know we talked about this the other night. I think the most impactful book is probably Atlas Shrugged. Um, it just really taught me the philosophy of like the morality of money and what it means to make money. Even the verb make, like to make money, means that I created value that previously didn't exist. So money isn't this zero-sum game where if uh, Tim makes more money, it means that someone else doesn't have that money anymore. That it taught me to you know think of the economy as a pie that can grow. And those go, hey, let's bake more pies. Let's not cut them into smaller slices. And so... I lost my guilt about making more profit um, after reading the book Atlas Shrugged, and it gave me that philosophical foundation for, frankly, just how I see the world now. And I, I really believe that profit is the accounting term for leaving the world better than you found it. So I want my company to be as profitable as possible. I want our clients to be as profitable as possible and not experience any, any guilt around that. So I love the book Atlas Shrugged, um, but there's tons of great great business books I could recommend. Um, I love The Fountainhead too, also by Ayn Rand, for, for a lot of the same reasons. It's just really inspiring. I read both of those at a young age, and I think they definitely shaped my intellectual development of how I see the world. Um, I know I sent you a copy of Atlas Shrugged. You're not going to help me with your money, my money until you read this book. <laughs> I yeah, I, I mean, I was like, this is a litmus test. If this guy will read this book, then we can have a conversation about you know us, us working together. But if you don't want to read this book, then that's a turnoff to me and you actually did. So I was actually quite impressed. It's like a 1200 page. Yeah, it, was, book, it, was so. a, it was a project. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good books. So, I mean, I love the four hour work week. I read that when I was college age, definitely shaped my intellectual development. Um, and the main takeaway from that book for me was thinking about the deferred life plan and the philosophy that most Americans have of I'm going to work hard, put in my time and basically suffer through the first 60 years of my life so that if I live to be, let's say, 85 years old, that I can enjoy the last 25 years of my life retired at some golf course condo 55 plus community. And that to me, like, never made sense intuitively. But this book laid out, like, don't do that because you're basically trading the best years of your life when you're the most healthy and the most mobile and the most active to be able to retire when you're older. So, this idea of the deferred life plan, don't do that. What if you spread out more vacations frequently throughout your life and actually made an effort to enjoy your life, still being financially responsible and saving money for when you're older, but make more of a conscious effort that I'm not saving for retirement because I'm tolerating a substandard existence now and I'll get to enjoy my life later. Enjoy it now. You know, 
you're gonna die. It's like the three most motivational words. You will die. Right. And and one of the things that I'm so impressed is because we work with a lot of people a lot of entrepreneurs around the country, we ask them what they want. And most of the time they don't know. And so what they say is, oh, I want to grow my business. I want to, you know, but they really, that doesn't really tell me what they want. And you have clarity on what you want as as far as like standard of living and just what you're looking for. And it's not like you're some person that's just, they're, they're measuring their success on how much money's in their bank account. You have clarity on, you want to have clients that you love being around. You want to have a team that loves being there. You want to not work 80 hours a week. Yeah, well, if you if if you look at people that are extremely wealthy, have $10 million or more, like there's different variations of ways of asking this question or like an office space. It's, um, you know, Peter, what would you do with a million bucks? Interesting question, but it's like a million dollars isn't that much. A <laughs> million dollars in retirement is like, cool, you'll be able to live off of $40,000 a year, right? So what if you had like $10 million, right? Like some real money. If I had $10 million, I'd probably still want to uh, work in a business because I enjoy it inherently. I'd want to work with people I like, with clients I like. I wouldn't want to work 80 hours a week. I'd want to work 40 hours a week. So I realized like I can do that now without $10 million in the bank. Like, I don't need the financial success to enjoy. Like, yes, I make a high income, I make good money, but it's not like the stacking of money in my bank account that defines success. And I don't mean this in some like woo-woo way of like, I'm above money, I don't care about money. I care more about money than most people listening to this show. I love money. You can quote me on that. I love money, hyphen Tim Shermack. Like, I think money is awesome. It's spiritual. The more money you have, the better person you are. Like, it means you've added more value to the world. Profit is a lagging indicator of value creation. Like Bill Gates added more value to the world because he made a bunch of money with Microsoft and invented the modern personal computer and Windows and all the software. He's added more value to the world doing that than he has been giving away money. Because anyone can give away money, but it, you know that's a zero-sum game, giving away money. Creating value, making profit, makes the world a better place, right? So I think Rockefeller made the world a better place by refining like the kerosene and light systems and his oil pipeline because he lowered the price of fuel and light for the average American by 80% in his lifetime. Henry Ford did the same thing for automobiles. He brought down the price of automobiles so much. Did he make a ton of money? Yeah. Did he give away? Does he have trust and foundations? Yeah. But making the money added more value to the world. Uh, So I really believe that making money is just as profound and spiritual and moral as is giving money away to charities or churches and yet collectively we all are, are we we all pretend to believe that making money is like morally neutral at best but you're a good person when you give it away and so uh anyways like to answer your question not trying to you know be woo woo or again saying i'm above money but like i just got clear on like what would actually make me happy because the purpose of money at a most fundamental practical level is like to make you happier, to enjoy your life more. And so I don't need $10 million to enjoy my life. Cause I thought, what would I do every day on a, on a daily basis? What would I do if I had $10 million in the bank? And I actually thought about it and I wrote it down. I was like, I'd probably take long walks every day with my wife, uh, Bella. I'd read more books. If I had that much money in the bank, I'd like to do more speaking and writing. I enjoy speaking at conferences and teaching people. And I've had the opportunity this year to do that a couple times. Just last week, I spoke at Duke, actually, uh, at Duke University on the topic of 
kind of the history of advertising and the uh, morality of advertising and how that fits into a moral discussion of the economy and why I think advertising is a good thing, actually. Uh, I'd like to do more of that. I'd want to work with clients I like, have a cool company culture, because I'd still work every day. I wouldn't just retire if I had 10 million. I would work because I enjoy it. And then I realized I could do that now. So literally nothing on that list, taking long walks with my wife every day, reading more books, speaking, working at a company I enjoy, none of that required $10 million in the bank. Like seriously, none of it was even close. And so like my life wouldn't change all that much. I mean, other than I'd have more money in the bank, I guess, because I'm doing all the things I would already be doing with that money. And so I just got really clear on what would make me happy to live the life I want to live. One thing that always annoys me about podcast interviews and books is that people never give specifics. So I'll give specifics, not because anyone should care about what my definitions or goals are, but there's probably some people maybe that are younger listening to this, that maybe this sparks them to get to get thinking about it. So I'll share specifics with you. Like I am happy in life. I'm not stressed. I have peace of mind. If I can make $30,000 a month, drive a brand new car, live in a newer house and have time freedom where I could like jet off and have the spontaneous freedom to take a vacation for a week with no notice or two weeks or whatever. I don't need to be making $50,000 a month or a hundred thousand dollars a month. You know, our business is scaling and I'm not worried about money right now, but I got clear that like, as long as I can make $30,000 a month, drive a new car, have a new house, have time freedom. So me and my wife can go on walks. I'm not chained to the business. You know, I don't have to ask permission to do things like anything after that is icing on the cake. And so that's my downside. Like I judge business risk by, and and is, is any risk I'm taking in business, would it jeopardize that? Because as long as I have that, I'm just as happy as I would be with $10 million. So I will risk everything to grow. I love growing businesses. I am insanely uh, insensitive to risk. When we were growing this growing platform, at one point I had like $50,000 of credit card debt because I was financing ads, hiring employees, the whole thing on personal credit cards because no bank would loan us money. I've had credit cards canceled because I just defaulted on it because I couldn't make the payments. Like now we're, we're doing well, obviously, but I am very insensitive to risk. And so I will take insane risks to grow the business because I enjoy it. It's like a game to me, right? As long as I can maintain that standard of living with what I said, like anything that risks that all of a sudden becomes very risky to me, almost in like a binary way. Like it either is or isn't. And I just want to challenge the people listening to this, like get clear on what that means. Like you have clarity on that. And so for some people, for some people, I'm not saying that all, all my uh, points are what they should be for everyone. Cause someone else listening to this is like, wow, he has, he has low standards. I want to be making a hundred thousand dollars a month. And other people would kill to make $10,000 a month. Right. And part of it is like, I want to drive a new car. So this earlier this year, I bought a brand new Dodge Ram, their newly redesigned one that has the big, like 12 inch screen in the middle where it looks like a Tesla. And it's like super awesome. It's like a $60,000 truck. That makes me happy. It doesn't make any financial sense to buy a brand new truck. I understand that it depreciates a ton the first year. If you were as my financial counselor, like, does this make sense to increase your net worth? No, it doesn't. It's a horrible decision if you're optimizing for net worth, but I optimize my life for happiness because the purpose of net worth is to bring you happiness. Net worth should not be the goal. I'd rather be happy than rich. And man, I just need people to understand this. If, if they're listening to this, have that sink in and and don't base your happiness on what Tim makes, makes him happy. Like ask the question, if you had $10 million in the bank, what would be different in your life? And then, and then 
it doesn't take $10 million to do that. I mean, my like truck payment, just to use that specific example, it's like $1,200 a month is my payment on that truck. Cause I, I realize like, I don't want to sink capital into something that's going to go down in value. I'd rather invest that money elsewhere and then just make the payments on this truck. It's like $1,200 a month I'm paying on this truck. And if you're optimizing for net worth, that is objectively a horrible decision to put money into something that's going to go down in value in the same way that one plus one equals two. It's just a horrible decision objectively, right? But I'm not optimizing for net worth. I'm optimizing for what makes me happy, right? Like if I wanted to build our business so that we could become attractive to a private equity company or some sort of strategic buyer, you know, there's players in the real estate industry that would probably want to acquire us because of our book of business and our brand and our assets, you know, there's companies like Curator, Boomtown, Commission Zinc, even Zillow. I mean, I would be running the business in a totally different way, but I'm not optimizing the business for that. To be acquired, there's not an exit strategy. I'm optimizing it for, does this make me happy? And so getting clear on that, it forces you to make different decisions. Not saying my decisions are right, because someone might want to build a business with the purpose of an exit strategy and getting acquired. And if that's what makes them happy, then they should absolutely do that. But I think most people, they don't get specific enough in how they define the good life. Like it's not enough to say, I want to have enough money not to worry. It's like, no, no, no. How much is that on a monthly basis? How much is that? Is driving a nice car important to you? Maybe not. Then don't worry about that. Are taking a lot of vacations important to you? If it's not, don't worry about that. Is going out to eat important to you? Like if it is, then spend a ton of money on that. If it's not, then don't try to impress other people by going out to eat and posting on Instagram all the time about the fancy places you're going to right? Like I don't really care about clothes. I don't spend a lot of money on clothes. I'm wearing like target jeans right now and a Disney sweatshirt and uh, literally a Mickey mouse watch, you know, like I don't care about some stuff and I care a lot about other stuff, but what makes me the happiest is, you know, the advice of Socrates, like know thyself. If you really do some thinking about what actually makes me happy, you can be and you, and, and you get clear on that and you optimize your financial decisions for that, where you stop optimizing for like, how am I going to build the fastest amount of wealth possible? And you're like, oh, I'd actually rather go buy this uh, Disney painting from Thomas Kincaid for $300 than put that $300 into some investment fund for the long term. Like, but Tim, the $300 could eventually compound into 2000 and then 5000 And then it's like, yeah, it could, but that's not the point. I'd rather have the painting or all, you know, all the advice about, uh, do you want to have the latte every day? Right. There's all these personal finance books, about for the price of a latte, you could retire a millionaire and, you know, skip the latte and make Folgers instead. It's like, if the choice is having a lot, like something I want every day, I mean, I don't drink lattes. I'm just using this as an example. Like if the choice is having a latte every day and like that brief moment of happiness that it gives you versus having an extra hundred thousand dollars in your account when you retire, like, God damn, take the latte, dude. You might get hit by a bus tomorrow. If you've been living your whole life in deprivation, thinking about my bank account might have more money when I'm older, what a horrible way to live your life. Like three words, you will die. That should motivate you to care about now, not later, right? Like even metaphysically, like whether you believe there's an afterlife or not, you should care about life right now. Because even if you do believe in heaven and hell and there's an afterlife, if this life doesn't matter, like, why don't you just off yourself right now and go to heaven, right? The fact that we're all not committing suicide to get to heaven faster must mean that deep down, we all know that this life matters right now. So why would I 
just pretend to not care about my happiness right now in the off chance, hoping that hopefully I'm happier when I retire. That's just stupid to me. And so that affects how I run my business, the decisions we make um, on how we accept clients, the type of people we work with, the type of people I hire. I know it's popular to say things like we only work with clients that are cool or we only hire people we'd want to grab a beer with. Like everyone says that, but we actually try to do that. And so I think if you care about your happiness now, it not only affects the social or it not only affects the social decisions you make, it affects the financial decisions that you make too. Like I'm well aware that I could save for retirement faster and I could build my nest egg faster and I could build a financial uh, foundation faster if I didn't have that $1,200 a month car payment or if my mortgage payment was slightly smaller than it is or if we didn't take as many trips to Disney as we do. I live in Florida, so we go to Disney like two or three times a month um, because we have like the annual pass. Um, You know, like go on Disney cruises every year. I'm a huge Walt Disney fan. I, like I said, used to work at Disney and I've read all of his biographies. And as as an entrepreneur, I'm fascinated by the man, Walt Disney. I spend all sorts of money on things I technically could be saving for retirement, but it's because it makes me happy now, right? If the purpose of having more money in your bank account is to make you happy, you could just skip that and go straight to happiness. All right, so we're gonna gonna wrap up, Tim. And a question that I ask everyone on this podcast is, if this was your last day and you were with the people that you love, so you don't have any kids yet, but like, let's just say you do, okay? You're with your family, you're with, people that mean the most to you what's what's your last words and piece of advice to them gonna be i mean obviously i would say all the things that everyone would say i love you i hope you enjoy spending time with me i've loved living my life with you blah 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 blah. but i'm gonna answer your question with a question because i hate when people ask like if it's your last day what would you do if you knew you were gonna die in a week what would you do because it's like a lot of people are like you know i'd probably get high and i'd eat pizza every day and like it's the wrong question, I think. It's, a, it's, a, it's the wrong question because what you're really trying to get at is what's most important to you and how would you live your life if you got clear on what's important to you? I think that's the real question that we're asking when we ask that. And so rather than saying, if it was your last day, what would you say or what would you do? I think about if I knew that two years from now I was going to die. Because two years is long enough to where I'm not thinking about how would I maximize my, like, my, my uh, selfish happiness in the next 24 hours, I'm starting thinking, what would my average median day want to look like? So there's a difference between mean and median, you know? Uh, having extreme highs and lows can throw off the mean, but it can't throw off the median. I want to optimize my life for daily median happiness, not mean. And so if it's two years away, even a week or two away, it's like that's not quite long enough to affect my lifestyle. But if I knew that two years from today, like Tim, you are going to get cancer and you're going to die in two years how would I want to live my life for the next two years? Because that's long enough where I'm thinking about just like, what am I going to wake up and eat every day? Am I going to take a a walk? How am I going to spend my time? What books do I want to read? Do I want to spend more time with my family? Not less. Like, you know what I mean? And so I think the question I'd, I'd answer your question with a question is how would I want to live my life for the next two years? And that's an interesting thing to think about because what you realize is in a two year time, time span, uh, that affects your daily decisions without any false sense of urgency. Like, oh my God, I'm going to die at midnight tonight. What do I want to do? Right. right. It's like, cause honestly, if that's the question, it's like, I'd probably go to Chipotle and get chips and guac and extra guac. And I always order my burrito with extra sour cream. And so I just make sure I do that. And but that's not really what you're asking. Right. Well, no. And I'm more asking of, was that, would that be the advice that you'd give someone? 
if if you if you were with the people that you love the most and would your advice be think about yourself dying in two years and make sure that you live your life in a way that will make you happy like optimize for happiness not net worth optimize for happiness not net worth the whole point of net worth is happiness so just like skip that part and get the happiness and if you get the net worth too then cool tim i i i know no like people listening to this know why i love talking to you uh, you're in everything. Like we haven't even talked about the most controversial things and we'll leave that for another podcast. It'll be like a bonus episode. Uh, let's see how many people we can offend. Uh, but man, thank you for not only having me at your event. Thank you for thank being, you. You were, you were awesome. It was great. Well, thank you for like your belief in us and thank you for your friendship. And just thank you for making me read a book that I would never read <laughs> if I didn't <laughs> have an incentive. And man, I'm, I'm excited to see what the future holds, man. Hey, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tim Chermack. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. And as always, thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for sharing the podcast. And thank you for being such a great advocate. Go out, have an amazing week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. Make sure you press subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast player.